0: Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. We've had another noteworthy review this week. Spudders LFC writes, unsufferable host with an insufferable voice. Which surprised him because I don't think anyone knew that I was going to be filling in for Yaz. Uh, But uh, as a reminder, you are allowed to slander us in basically whatever way you see fit, as long as it accompanies a five-star review. So go wild. There's lots to get through this week. Uh, As well as the Commonwealth Games, the start of the 100, Richard Thompson's appointment as ECB chair and all the other happenings in the world game. We'll also take some time to look back in depth at South Africa's 2003 Test Series draw in England. A series which saw the end of the Hussein era and the start of Vaughan's reign. Breakout performances from Graham Smith and Andrew Flintoff. And the final test ser- century of a certain Mark Butcher, who joins us in person today. Mark, how's it going? Yeah,
2: very good. Lovely to be back. Um, Centre Parks was, was a welcome break, but I'm now fit and rearing to go. <laughs> That's good. Rested <laughs> and rotated
0: in a uh, We've also got Wisdom Cricket Monthly magazine editor Joe Harmon, who wrote an excellent feature on that very series in the new issue of Wisdom Cricket Monthly out this week, and Taha Hashim, who was six years old when that series took place.
2: (laughs) Oh, jeez. Hello, Taha.
0: Hello, Joe. Let's start at Edgbaston, where New Zealand beat England to Commonwealth Games bronze, and Australia, no surprises there, claimed gold ahead of India. We'll get to the cricket itself in a second, but in a way the most remarkable thing about it was Talia McGrath's participation in the final, she tested positive for COVID-19 and had low-level symptoms but was still allowed to play. She sat masked up away from her teammates while Australia were batting and waved her teammates away from celebrating with her after taking the catch of Shafali Verma in the field. But it's remarkable how quickly the world has moved on, given that it's only eight months ago that Pat Cummins missed an test just for being a close contact for someone with COVID. And now we've got a player who is literally COVID-positive just playing as normal,
2: essentially. Yeah, well, you wonder how long that might have been going on anyway, don't you, in some certain... Um, in, in some of the some of the places that I've been, when when the testing was, uh, you still had to sort of test negative or whatever. The um, they basically put the the testing stick in your general vicinity and then walked off and said you were fine. So um, you wonder how long that has actually been going on, but obviously not officially. Um, players having COVID and, and being out there on the park. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? They, you know, obviously, vac- the vaccines have changed a, a lot for the for the better in in terms of people being able to go about their, their their daily lives in a relatively normal way I was there was a, there was something that I saw on Twitter yesterday and of course you have to be a little bit careful I'm not wasn't sh- didn't sort of check the veracity of it but they're saying that in Australia the sort of like the third highest cause of death now is COVID over there in Australia itself um of course they were uh, very heavily locked down for a long long period of time weren't they but they don't they don't seem to be entirely on top of things over there at the moment since coming out of it so um yeah, I mean, interesting. Uh, as interesting as, as India losing another final? Maybe not, but it's uh, worth talking about. Yeah, well,
0: there has been a bit of sort of backlash to that decision, but I, I can't really tell if it is just the sort of changing world and something we are going to have to get used to, basically.
4: Harmanpreet, India's captain, seemed fine with it, really. And she said she didn't want to see McGrath pulled out at the last minute. I think if the opposition kick up a stink, then there's going to be an issue. Um but I think there is an understanding, potentially based on what Butcher's saying, that you know this is this might be one where you've got a positive, but this kind of thing has probably been happening quite, quite a lot, perhaps. So to drag someone out of a big final at the last minute would have seemed perhaps a bit unfair and churlish, given that people are wandering around the country with COVID day in day out at the moment, and that's that's within the rules. So
2: yeah, well, I mean, I think the other part of it is the fact that it was a final, I guess. Uh, not that it's you know it's such a big game that you should you know you should be able to to, to sort of flaunt whatever rules might be in place and I'm not saying that's what they did but I wonder if they might have taken a slightly different view if it had been one of the games earlier on because then of course you then run the risk of, of lots more people contracting it and then having a problem with people being in the squad so the fact that there wasn't anything to do beyond the final probably led to, uh, led to the decision being taken it was a pretty pragmatic one and, and you're right if the, if the opposition don't mind then um, you crack on.
1: I mean, McGrath himself had a pretty poor game, uh, having had a pretty. I'm not surprised.
2: Pretty she wasn't pretty pretty feeling very well.
1: Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. But it's it's not just that. But also, like, imagine you're. I imagine that while you're playing this huge game in your career, you're also just constantly thinking about the fact that COVID. I can't go near my teammates. Like. You know, like, she I'm was
4: just, ushering them away at one point wasn't she I think. Yeah, exactly. did she take a catch and they came to sort yeah, of circle exactly. her and she kind yeah. of yeah. sent everyone away so that's um, it's an odd thing to have in the back of your mind when you're taking a catch that you can't let anyone near you after so
1: almost i can't really even sort of see envisage like a, anyone having a really good game like being able to put aside one the illness but also just like the constant thinking about it yeah
2: i think you're i mean it's a really good point i mean it's probably not a great probably not a great pick yeah. is what you're saying yeah and also
1: <laughs> that thing about like you know they win and she's kind of like has to keep still keep her distance and that kind of thing it's just like just bizarre i remember when i like when i saw the sort of news flash up that she was playing i mean tested i was just like what is this This is ridiculous
2: well i mean I, you know, I had to pull out of the the test match um the lord's test for the the first one against new zealand like my, my wife and daughter tested positive on the on the Wednesday morning, I popped in, I came home from, from another game, popped in, grabbed my stuff and left. And then by the time, you know, so I had to tell them that, I, that I'd been in contact with people. They wanted a, a, a clear test. I got one that evening, but then the next morning I woke up feeling dreadful. And so I thought, well, I've, I've probably got it. And lo and behold, that night I had I tested positive. And so from a work point of view, we would need two, um, two negative lateral flow tests before they let us come back. To work so different organisations obviously have different ways of dealing with it I and
4: I guess you're sitting in an enclosed box with these people with so if you've mics. got it everyone's going to get li- it yeah, with
2: yeah. lit mics and, and various other stuff so yeah yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I guess you sort of touched on it Taha that it almost shows how keen Australia were to include her it's how important McGrath's become so quickly and although Australia won which what we'd all expected this was a close game, India needed 17 off the last two overs, they had four weeks in hand and then sort of collapsed at the end Uh, I don't know, was this Australia being beatable and just squeezing over the line? Or was this Australia knowing how to get it done when uh, it kind of came down to it, do you think, Joe?
4: Um, I think in those scenarios, I pretty much always think Australia are going to get over the line and that they've got things under control, even when, to all intents and purposes, they don't seem to. And it was similar to the first game of the tournament as well, which was a game that Australia shouldn't have really won. But still, you look at the depth of their side just that they've all, always got the quality to come good particularly in big games and there is that there is that thing now where india have lost a lot of finals and, and you, they've got that mental hurdle to overcome as well um but i think it was it was a good i think in general it was a good tournament i think it was from the bits i saw it was it was a good advert for the game that, that horrible cliche um but i think i think it was and and actually i mean Taha said before this india getting to the final i think is is good for the game as well if we want to expand it beyond its um, kind of traditional boundaries. Um, England will be disappointed, but I think we're going to come on onto that. Yeah, well, let, bit. Let,
0: let's let's do it now. I mean, they came forth, they lost a, a close game by four runs to India in the semi-final and then were thumped by New Zealand. I wonder if there was, if they had almost more of a hangover than New Zealand, New Zealand going into a semi with Australia and think, well, we're probably, you know, we're going to need to do something really good to win here. So you're not so disappointed, whereas England comes so close and then end up playing the match they don't want to play in. Uh, But you you actually were more disappointed by their semi-final performance, Joe.
4: Yeah, I I found it frustrating to watch. They didn't bowl particularly well. Certainly up top, they bowled poorly. Then they pulled it back and were left with a chaseable target of, what, 160, pretty much. Yeah, 160-odd. And they got off to a bit of a flyer. So, Svea Dunkley scored a quick 20. And then Danny White continued it. And they were in a really, really strong position. And then it was a Siver and Amy Jones partnership for quite a long period of the game, the middle overs. And I just thought they, again, another awful cliche, lacked intent, but they were really, both of them were playing the same role, which was to knock it around. Siva was struggling uncharacteristically. I could see she needs to just stay in there and and hope that fluency comes, but I thought Amy Jones should have gone out harder. She was going at pretty much a runner ball and the run rate, required run rate, kept creeping up, kept creeping up. And I thought it was just a a poorly judged chase in the end and and it felt almost inevitable that they were going to come up short because they just left themselves too much to do. And I thought it was naive, particularly when it was almost like they were playing thinking that they had the tail that they used to have where England have struggled for lower order hitters beyond Brunt. But Eccleston gives it a whack. I mean, she had the last ball the game for six, didn't she? Exactly. And yeah. there, there you think, well I thought she should have come in to, I thought she should have come in when Bouchier came on anyway. But they shouldn't have really been chasing that required run rate. It should have been much more manageable than it was. And I think that I think they'll be kicking themselves looking back on that. Not New Zealand was different, they just played very poorly. Against India, I think it was a poor kind of game management. I don't know how much of that is to do with Heather Knight not being part of the group, not having a skipper there probably doesn't help. Um or whether Sivha maybe tightened up a little bit with the bat because she has so much responsibility on on her shoulders as captain, but it was not it was not the Sivva knock that we've come to expect over the last couple of years. Which you know, it's, it's fair enough, she can't play brilliantly every time. But if she doesn't, then she needs a bit more support around her, I think.
0: Ta mm-hmm. so you were impressed by some of the newer faces in the England camp.
1: Yeah, I mean, kind of the expectation was that England should be at least getting to the final. Um, and then at the very least getting bronze medal, which sounds weird. But um, I mean, I still found it quite exciting watching them throughout the tournament, just because there are just simply there are just some newer faces in there. Capsi is brilliant. Um, we saw it kind of last year. In the 100, but then obviously to still coming to an England team and the, and the way she's played, you know, going down the track to Shabnam Ismail and that game against South Africa and getting a half century. and just Some of her shots through the offside were brilliant. Um, uh, Freya Kemp came in um, and was kind of like the final like box ticked in an attack which had, you know, pretty decent pace, right arm pace, left arm pace, spin, uh, a leg spinner, a left arm spinner. Uh, an offy as well um, and yeah I mean I've quite I mean it, it's funny because uh, like like Joe saying they kind of there was kind of a, a conservatism thing in that in that game against India and you say you know not sending Eccleston up and the way Siver and, and Jones batted but then part of this England side has also been you know having Dunkley open the batting as well just trying to be a bit more aggressive dropping Beaumont for this tournament there were kind of signs there that they were going to kind of push through and with these newer faces, have kind of a, a newer style of play as well. Um, so it's, in the end, it'll be kind of like a one to look back on as a maybe good in the long term type of thing. Um, yeah, if you if you're going to put a positive spin on it, basically.
0: Yeah. Well, well, just before we started recording, the news broke that Lisa Kitely is stepping down as England head coach at the end of the summer. That decision was uh, reached before the Commonwealth Games, according to ECB, and the statement reads that both parties agreed the time was right to ensure the next head coach has time to work with the squad in the lead up to the next. Women's T20 World Cup. Uh, under her, England reached the semi-finals of the T20 World Cup, the final of the ODI World Cup, uh, did OK in the Ash, had obviously a brilliant test match, um, and we'll have more in her reign and England's search for success next week. But, but sh- it's it's that, the expanding of England's player pool and those young players that have been brought in when for so long England's team was quite a closed shop. Will that be the Kitely legacy, I guess, if such a thing exists?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, anytime you come in off the back of um, off the back of great success, and any time you have a, a squad that is, is is getting a little bit older, a little bit more experience, the likelihood that you continue um, to to sort of dominate, or at least dominate outside of Australia, um, and and that transition continues without any bumps in the road is is is, is pretty unlikely. Um, and yet, in in the midst of all of that, they've managed to sort of ease out some of the, the old faces. Obviously, Anya Shrub, um, retiring as one of the big ones. Catherine Brunt now. Um, just uh, she's still she's still going to play white ball, right? She hasn't she's not made any announcements. Anymore. No, not not. No, no, I mean she no. was she was non-committal when she was not asked. Right, that okay. I mean, so you know, they, they they had they had big, potentially very big shoes to fill, and um, and I think they've gone a long way towards doing that. So they managed to they managed to keep their competitive edge and still be a good side. You know, they they should have won the, that. That semi-final, and I I wonder just how much in the women's game still that chasing, particularly when the game when the stakes become very high, becomes you know is more difficult than perhaps it might be in the men's game, and that's you know that's understandable. It it was it was years, Um, it was it was a long long time before people chased down targets on a regular basis in, in in men's 50 and 20 over cricket. You know that that sort of transition took a long time for people to be able to sort of judge run chases be able to take more risks when when the scoreboard pressure was there so you know that, that it's understandable we've seen india do it on many occasions now and and, it, and it's you know england winning that world cup in 2017 was defending wasn't it you know a game they probably should have lost the team in the field somehow has the has the whip hand you feel in in, in big games in women's cricket so look I, I think it's been an excellent job and she hands it over um, to whoever comes in next with Young players who've got experience behind them now—they're not all starting as, as debutants. Won't be starting as debutants at some point in the in the lead-up to the next World Cup in 2023. They'll all—they've all got game time. They're all now part of an integrated squad. They don't sort of walk in and look at Nat Siver and Heather Knight and think, "Oh my God, you know, um, these are these are sort of big scary um, beasts in the in the side." They've played with them. They're in the, the dressing room, and it can only augur well going forward. So I think she's done a she's done a pretty good job.
0: Yeah, and and just on the pressure point, people were. Uh talking after the India defeat about how this showed the need for a women's IPL, obviously because Australia have that massive player pool that's come from the big bash, but they've also just played so many more games that matter and that have quite a lot riding on them that are in front of big crowds with big platforms. And that kind of shows as well, it's, uh, it's as much the quality of their players, balls also the fact that they've just that have been in those kind of situations before in a way that other tights sometimes haven't at those
2: big stages yeah for sure and you, and the, the growth it's just it's just the growth of the game isn't it the more the, the more the more there is the more sort of platforms there are the more that the the women's game kind of grows you'll end up as a matter of course having more eyeballs and, and more sort of meaningful contests i suppose um, and so so it's not a necessity it's kind of like we don't need to do this because India and, and, and other teams are losing it's just that this is going to be the natural progression of how it goes and you will end up then with any luck having um, you know not having Australia be su- such standout um, favourites for every tournament you go into but we, you know we're probably about three or four years away from that yet. Yeah. yeah well so as you said Joe good
0: from a neutral perspective, there were 17,000 in for the final, which was only 3,000 short of capacity. Edgbaston was reduced capacity for some reason. Uh, raf Nicholson tweeted that was a, a record for the neutral women's international in England, and that would be a few years ago. That would have been an impressive figure even for a, uh, an England women's game, um, and you know even for the hundred that would have been something they'd had dreamed of at the start of last year. Uh, and there came this week the news that cricket has been added to a shortlist of nine sports for review ahead of the 2028 Olympic Games, which will be held in LA. Uh, at a time when international cricket needs all the option it can get, that would be hugely welcome, wouldn't it, Taha, if, if cricket were finally to be uh, uh, in in that multi sport event?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just don't really see the downside to it. <laughs> the, know,
4: the schedule would uh, be the only one. Yeah, but. Like, and I'm not saying that is significant enough to be yeah. put into the mix, but that, I mean, there is a lot of cricket around. So, I,
1: <laughs> I think historically that was kind of the ECB. ECB's reluctance towards the Olympics. I think Giles Clark was, you know, he was like, well, it's going to eat until summer, we'll lose a lot of money. But you can also kind of understand now this growing argument where, I mean, I guess I'm just seeing it from an England point of view and from not other t- not other teams, but you could have a team playing in the Olympics in a shorter form. And I guess you could still have test cricket here, right? That's, that's kind of a thing that could happen, especially, in, you know, six years down the line. Yeah. we're kind of seeing the game go towards that direction anyway
2: i mean i, I have a I I suppose i have a, a a an aversion to the idea in the same way that i did when the um the dream team played you know the the, the i know the olympic ideal is not quite what it used to be in terms of amateur sports people etc and i i know those days are long gone but i still find the idea of of, of professional paid sports people in in an Olympic Games, which is the showcase for sports that do not have year round, um, do not have year round spotlights. You know, seasons that come in and out every every single year. And I, and I know, I understand it from the point of view of trying to grow the game beyond the beyond the eyes of other people. But given the uh, the congestion that there is, and given that there is there is so little room for any for anything else, you would imagine. Um, adding, adding some yet another um, com, uh, competition, another another player drain into something which traditionally I don't think cricket belongs. Is um, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing for to have somebody come and tell me I'm talking nonsense, but it just doesn't feel it doesn't feel like something that I'd be massively excited about. Put it that way. No, and I
4: guess there's an element that is sort of as England centric cricket supporters. Maybe it's just it's not really for us. It's not a uh... It's it's about exposure for other nations. It's about you know giving more opportunities for, for teams to to play cricket on a big stage and for for, for, for well GB it would be uh, that doesn't really that doesn't really uh, matter particularly because there are there are bigger fish to fry. But in terms of the global game, I, I, I think it's a, I'm for it in that in that step. But I think that there is a risk for as for us as cricket fans that it falls a bit flat. Like I mean Olympic football or soccer has never had any interest for me whatsoever and I'm a massive football fan Uh, and cricket might feel a bit like that for us as well when it's on the Olympics but hopefully it doesn't feel like that for loads of other people who are potentially coming to the game for the first time or, or other emerging nations get a chance to play it on a bigger stage.
1: I don't know there's this always this inherent conservatism to for cricket to kind of do something different you know we we've felt it for the last few years with the hundred uh I'm not trying to equate those two arguments but like what is what's the worst that's going to happen from it
0: elsewhere the ecb's long search for a chair has finally come to an end with it announced that richard thompson currently the chair at surrey will take up the role from the beginning of september joe what what can we expect uh, from him
4: um i don't know if i can answer that to be honest uh, i don't well okay so he did an interview with the cricketer in 2018 when he'd just resigned from the ecb board uh he was unhappy that decisions were being made that he wasn't being consulted on or even aware of i think this is particularly the colin graves era where he was uh sort of his own man and you know one example was launching a lawsuit against espn which richard thompson only heard about in the press and i don't think he wanted to be affiliated with some of those things so he stood he stood down but in that interview it's always interesting going back to what people say before they get roles that they probably didn't expect to get Rob Kee a good recent example. Um, but Richard Thompson talks about Red Bull cricket being the gold standard, Championship cricket being the gold standard. Said so that's where legacies are left and careers are made. Uh, and he continues, there's got to be a real sense that we can't allow Red Bull cricket to become diminished any further or devalued anymore. So, you know, those are strong words I think most of us in this room agree with. A lot of traditional cricket fans agree with. The question is, when you're in that position, what can you do effectively to make sure that, that actually that belief is followed and that'll be really interesting to see if he can continue to do that another interesting element is surrey voted against the hundred have not been uh vociferous in support of it since now you've got the surrey chairman in that former surrey chairman in that position at the ecb look anyone who thinks the hundred is going to disappear as a result of this sorry folks that, that that's not happening but it will be interesting to see that how that tension potential tension develops given that the club he represented previously were, were not on board with this as a project and, and didn't really see the value in it albeit as a rich club that didn't necessarily need it in the way that some other counties might have benefited from its support financially at least.
0: Well I suppose that'd be an interesting thing in that when he was in charge of Surrey that was obviously that might well have been what he believed from a principal point of view as well but it made sense from a business point of view for Surrey because they were one of the counties who could sort of support themselves and didn't need this cash injection so if they had something that they felt was going to diminish their standing as you know the oval side uh, that would be something they would be against from a you know e- e- even though it might have also had magnanimous intentions from a, a self-interest point of view as well uh, but but you, you know I'm um, you know him quite well. Uh, yeah. What what sort of personality is um, it going to be rubbing people up the wrong way like Graves and Clark? or whatever? He, right? he
2: doesn't he doesn't suffer fools. That is for sure. Um, and he will stand his corner on on things that he that he believes strongly in. I mean, Tomo was a was a very successful businessman before he had his first um, first go uh, at being chairman of, of Surrey. So he was um, chairman for the for that period where where Surrey County Cricket Club started to to win championships and and to build that. Um, to build that sort of fantastic team around the turn of the century, he um, then you know the, walked away and, and and went off and pursued other interests and, and then sort of saw the way that things were going here at the club didn 't like what he saw and decided to come back again so he 's kind of got that perspective of somebody that 's been in the been in the job has then gone off and pursued um, pursued other sort of other business interests but then come back to it simply out of the lo- the, the, the love for the club and the love for the, the game. Um, you know, I was in on, on some of the meetings with, because I was a, a, a Surrey um, General Committee member, and I was in with some of the meetings with the ECB when when it was getting very very fractious, because um, you know clearly having not not having one of the, the the big counties, one of the big grounds on board with 100 was a big problem for the ECB, and um, and Richard very much stood his corner and very much spoke up for the other for the other counties. You know, he understood that the position that Surrey is and was in then is very different from uh, from a lot of the others. And was very keen to sort of point out, yeah, okay, I mean, you know, for us, we kind of, you know, we feel as though we put on T20, tournaments and T20 matches um, as, as well as, as anything, and nothing that you can do with a, with a team that is not, the, not Surrey is going to be any better than what we do here already. So from our point of view, um, you know, it, it need, you need to sell it a little bit better. And from everybody else's point of view, there is a, there is a danger that they're kind of signing their, signing their death warrant with it. And he was very keen to kind of try and point, to try and point that out. Um, and that was the reason why Surrey took the stand that they did um, you know, and as, as it's turned out, that there was no stopping the hundred. But I think it was, an, it, I think it's an important sort of marker for for somebody like him to lay down, in terms of having the other 17 chairmen sort of look at him and go, okay, well this guy was willing to w- willing to stick his neck out for us um, on an issue as big as this, even when Surrey County Cricket Club didn't need to and didn't have to. So uh, th- that's the kind of guy you're dealing with. Um, you know, on a on a personal level. You know, t- terrific fun, great great fella to, to, to be around. Um, very, very sociable, very sort of willing to, to, to mix and to, and to talk to various people. But you, you get on the wrong side of him, you're in serious trouble. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's, that's, that's what you got. And, it, you know, it's, uh, I think it's really interesting to have somebody with with his, with his background and his time in the game and his time in the sport taking over at this, which, which feels like a really pivotal moment in the, in the game in this country um, and, and wider than that, you know, the, with the, you know, the UAE League and the, the problems that Australia now finding with their, with their players for the Big Bash and the proliferation of, of franchise um, tournaments around the world, all of this type of stuff.
1: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful
2: trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to bluenile.com. That's bluenile.com. Um, it's going to need a strong lead, um, and I think he's that.
0: Well, ahead of the test series starts next week, the uh, South Africa playing a, against the Lions side at Canterbury often Lions squads are not too interesting but given this is the first Rebel Bull Lions squad of the McCullum era and the test squads have been very similar so far I think there maybe is a little bit to be read into them possibly so just quickly Sam Billings in as captain uh, Brooke Robinson Overton you will expect to be there being on the fringe of the test side um, Sam Cook's in there as well Liam Patterson White and Will Jack's the two spin options which I guess is noticeable considering the Pakistan series later this year And then Sam Connors, who's a tall Derbyshire quick, and James Rue, an 18-year-old Somerset keeper who made his maiden first-class 100 recently, are the two most unknown faces. But for me, it's the batters in there. So Keaton Jennings, Dom Sibley, Dan Lawrence and Ben Duckett that tell us the most about England plans, that maybe they're not afraid to go back to people. And especially, um, I guess, especially Sibley, But I mean, Lawrence and Duckett fit the McCullum-Mantry fairly well but Sibley's about as far from that template as you can get and the fact that he is in this this effectively second string England side is perhaps notable
2: yeah I think so but I also I also believe that players are not and are not um are not beholden to to one one way of being able to play now Don will have looked at what's gone on and and thought to himself well if I want to get back to play test match cricket again I've got to expand my game in fact he knew that anyway that was part of the reason he was left out in the first place But now, obviously, seeing the direction of travel, um, you know, in in order to be a... If you're a smart man, you've kind of thought to yourself, okay, well, I'm going to need to adjust my game and perhaps my thinking in terms of if I want to get back up there again. Um, Keaton Jennings is another example, somebody that's kind of... That's had a, he's had a decent season, hasn't he? There's there've been a few guys who have, have made runs, who have had a go before. I definitely think that that's an advantage for, for players to have to have experienced Test match cricket and failed. Um, it certainly shouldn't rule you out of getting another another go at it at some point down the line. But at the moment, the the door appears to be to be shut. I mean, other other names on there. I mean, Dan Lawrence is interesting because he's kind of he's he's found his moment has kind of come and gone, hasn't it? Um, for the moment, anyhow, you know Johnny Bairstow has now just nailed the nailed the door shut on on a number five berth. Joe Root's back at number four, so you're not getting in there. Um, you know six, you're not getting in. The captain's back in there, so you've got number three or opening. That's that. That's where that's where you're looking. I, I like the fact that we have these games that the guys get a chance to go and play long form cricket in a in an environment that is not their own um, against high class opposition. Mm. On
0: on Jennings Taha, you spoke to him for WCM. Did you get the sense this is a player sort of ready for another go
1: not really in kind of the way that obviously naturally we talked about his season so far but obviously we have to talk about england because that's just what you do when someone makes a few runs um but he he's someone who just i guess has had two pretty solid seasons actually did quite well last year as well but no one really talks about him anymore just because of how it went at test level i mean he he did really struggle obviously have those 200s in the subcontinent but uh otherwise um you know i think he's reached 50 about three times in 32 innings um but i you know i asked him about his test ambitions and obviously he was he was quite you know i'd love to play test cricket again Who, i mean who wouldn't say that but he was you know he was he also said he was quite philo- philosophical about the whole thing and just said where i am with my life you know if i don't play Test Creek again. I'm as happy as I would be if I did play Test Creek again. And again, it's one of those things where it's like, do you actually mean it? But just the way he said it and the way he was kind of just talking about it, I kind of, I kind of did buy it. He is someone who, I guess people are still judging him by how he went a few years ago, but he's, you know, he said, he said himself, I'm older. That helps with a lot of things in terms of how you look at the game, but also, makes you a better player makes you a better player he's kind of changed his technique a bit if you watch him now he's quite, quite a different player to the one we saw at test level where he was kind of quite upright the bat was up high and he said just a small change of made is um the bat's a lot lower it basically you know hits the ground for you um as, as the bowl is running in uh and i guess we kind of we kind of fall into the mindset of just looking oh here's this guy's test average you know forget it it's not going to happen but um Players are allowed to get better, believe it or not. Uh, and so, not saying you should play Saskari again, but I'm interested to see how he goes.
4: He was the name that jumped out for me because he's not. Sibley has sort of recently been dropped and was on the line, was picked for the Lions tour, which he didn't go on quite recently. So he's sort of in that kind of next in line bit. And then you've got they pick young players who they just want to have a look at. There's no reason to go back to Jennings at this point unless you are considering him as a potential Test cricketer again. And we've got trip to Pakistan in what is it, December? The Test series out there. He's got a century in Gaul. He's got a century in Mumbai. If Crawley has failed throughout the South Africa series, which on recent form is perfectly possible, do they get to a point eventually where they have to say, "Well, we can't, we can't continue picking him"? And if that if they do get to that point and they're looking for an opener who can play spin well, we talked about Hassi Hamid uh, a couple of pods ago about being a potential kind of horses for courses selection for those reasons. Jennings is probably above him in that horses of course's idea because he's actually got you've got more recent runs in, in the subcontinent and he's had a better year than Hamid. Hamid's had a good year but Jennings has had a, a better year and is playing Div 1 cricket.
0: Yeah, and I guess there's also, I mean Rob Key said when McCullum was appointed that when asked about the likes of Crawley and Pope uh, that they sort of needed the right environment to unlock their potential. And if that's true of them, why would that not be true for some of the other players who have been tried and discarded in the past who might now... And, and why might someone like Jennings not be one of them, I suppose? Um, one,
1: one of the things he also said was just how intense he was when he was playing Test cricket uh, and how he'd... You know, obviously, if he did things again, he would just be a, a lot more relaxed and it just kind of sounded like the type of guy who... Obviously, I mean, I guess right now, who wouldn't want to play under... Brendan McCollum and Ben Stokes, but he seems like the type of guy who is kind of that kind of that sort of far more chilled out mindset of wanting to of understanding that it's not you know, it's not the end of the world if you don't get runs today and he's kinda of got there in his career.
2: I think the, the, I suppose the only I suppose the only caveat to all of this, and particularly with Pakistan in mind, is that you are going to have a couple of new bowl ball new ball bowlers who bow rockets as well. So well, you, know, I, it's not, you might sorry. you've got to, you've got to get to the spinners first.
0: If, <laughs> if you look at what the spinners average in that Australia Pakistan series <laughs> yeah. this year, then actually maybe it's the pace to worry about. But yeah. yeah, but anyway, no,
2: yeah. I mean I'm good good to see him enjoying his, his, his cricket and um, and playing well. You know, mm. uh, the men's hundred has started. I don't know if anyone noticed that.
0: Uh, probably the moment the competition came at lords yesterday when tottenham Hotspurs harry kane and matt doherty came out to to whack a (laughs) few balls uh before play started harry kane also did the toss in a in a morgan stead um that
1: was actually more interesting than than the game itself uh yeah well we're only a few
0: games so we won't get too deep into the analysis of it uh but it's all about enjoyment so tar have you enjoyed it Has it grabbed your attention passed you by
1: um well i've kind of enjoyed one game which was here uh, Oval Invincibles versus London Spirit, where um Oval Invincibles were like twelve for four or something chasing it, and the game's pretty much dead. And then Danny Briggs having bowled just five balls, um, uh, suddenly turns it up with the bat as does Sunil Narine. Uh, I think they need six off the last ball, and then just fell short. But like it was you know, a genuinely great game, good atmosphere as well. Um, but then, at the, on, on the flip side of that, I was at Lords last night for London Spirit West Manchester Originals, which was properly one-sided uh, and yeah, not that great. But I mean, the tournament will presumably pick up. It's yeah. kind of it's kind of missed that kind of obviously the the thing about the double headers was also kind of an atmosphere kind of building throughout the day as well. Uh, and so yeah, when I when I left Lords, so when I left Lords last night, I was noting how different it was to when i left lords the year uh, last year where it was like i was a sort of like freshers week at uni uh whereas last night was just very uh just very very calm you know not not much happening um i guess so, w-
0: when the women's competition starts you would also just be more likely to get one of the two games be good like if you have two bad games in a row now it's like actually that's like kind of 40 hours a bit more where the 100 seems like it's sort of a bit of a dud, whereas in when there's two games in a day, you have just much more chance of a standout thing well, you happening. You know what it is, does?
2: But... It really highlights how short it is. Mm. I mean, I know we've had a couple of, couple of issues with games going over time or whatever, but when there's only one game, you really do, you know, and if it isn't any good, it feels like, <laughs> what have I just wasted? Uh, no, I didn't say that. Yes, I did. Well, you know, you've just you know a couple of hours have gone by, and kind of you think, oh, okay, is that it? And and people trudge off home. It was a bit like that at Cardiff on um, on Sunday. Um, so yeah, I mean, I suppose you know you got used to it. What last year with with it all being double headers, didn't you? So your expectation was that it hasn't been that. It's not going to be that until what day? What day do we get to the double headers? Thursday. Is it Thursday? Yeah. Right. It was, it's um, Tuesday today um and so yeah so, so things will perhaps return to normal and there was also you know again and I, I can't reiterate this enough during the tournament last year the amount of um sort of you know 10 to 10 to 18 year old girls who'd come to watch the girls games who then stuck around and watched the men's games afterwards and that they they'd, you know there were younger younger kids with parents and all that kind of stuff but you did the the the, the um the, the age groups and the and the and the and the, the dynamic of of who was there watching was very different when there hadn't been the the, the girls' game prior to the men's game. so you know it's just interesting to observe how how the uh, the dynamic is uh, is different when the when the girls' games are on too.
0: Joe your moment of the week came from the 100 and actually that game here same it's game that awesome. I was already talked about actually yes. <laughs>
4: but um, it wasn't really it wasn't really the 100 itself it was it was Jason Roy's continued struggles so uh, yeah first ball of the Invincible's reply he guided a fairly innocuous delivery straight into the hands of Mason Crane at a kind of fly slip position out first ball walks off kind of laughing as though he's just like what what have I got to do like how do I get out of this funk and then three days later Uh, He gets 10 off 10 against Welsh Fire and absolutely middles one to short, fine leg. So he's finding various ways of of getting out. And after a miserable T20 summer for England, we've got the numbers here, 76 runs at an average of 13. Strike rate of just 78 is almost more concerning because it's just, that's not what we know of Jason Roy. Obviously, things are not working for him. Uh, Kevin Peterson is rallied to his defence. Said he's England's best player and has been for a number of years, which, which is, you know, KP K- hyperbole but he has been a brilliant more 50 over his T20 record is not superb it's good but it's not exceptional but we all know what he can do in that format um, look, a, a fit and firing Jason Roy is in my England side absolutely but I don't know how long I'm thinking heads of the World Cup here he needs some runs quite soon I think because I'm not saying his career should be over by any means he's 32 he's got many years ahead of him, but in T20 particularly when you're opening and you've got those power play deliveries you can't carry someone. You can't have someone soaking up deliveries at that time. And form is so important in T20. So I think dropping someone for a tournament and bringing them back in T20 is kind of acceptable in a way that it might not be in, in other formats just because single deliveries matter so much. So Roy, he's got, you know, he's got plenty of knocks to go in the 100 to, to pull himself out of this funk. But I think he needs to do it quite quickly because England aren't short of options. There are lots of players breathing down his neck. And uh, England's T20 side, particularly given they're struggling, they they need to be quite ruthless, I think, when they pick their squad. Um, so we'll have to see how he goes. But it's it's looking it's looking tough for him, Butch. I mean, you, when you see a player yeah, no, out of
2: form like that, no, it, he's having he's having an absolute mare yeah. at the minute. And and I, I hadn't hadn't been concerned actually until the the last um, T20 game at Southampton. Um, where he just—it was almost like you could see the 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 cogs whirring around in his head. He was kind of thinking, "Should I hit this? Should I not?" Um, and that 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 is where you know, before, you know, if you're going out there to trying to take massive risks at the top of the order, you're going to have runs where you don't score any runs. But it was the it was the sudden hesitancy as to whether or not he should should try and thump it or not that was a little bit of a concern. Now the chances are he's going to come out of that between now and the end of the hundred. Um, and then, and then you'd be happy enough to pick him. I mean, England's options when, when they have, you know, when the likes of Stokes is back and they've they've got a full, um, a full list to pick from, within the guys that you would normally see in in England's white ball stuff, you could, you've got options to sort of bring Berso to the top of the order, and you know you could bat Stokes at number three, whatever you could adjust it around the players that you've got already without even bringing somebody else in. And somebody like Phil Salt will probably be, you would imagine, will probably be in the squad anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, at the moment, it's not panic stations, but it's a good story, though, isn't it? Because he, re- you know, the, the the struggles. There are struggles, and there are struggles at the moment. It's very, very public, and it, it looks like it's getting worse rather than better at the minute.
4: Well, that's what it has become a story. Every time he bats now, it will be a story, and that's the BBC headline now. And but I was thinking of his ODI career. I was just looking up his scores because I remembered a kind of similar funk, and I think it was two thousand and seventeen, the Champions Trophy. Yeah, yeah, and he really did struggle and I thought there were similar things he was getting out in odd ways he looked his brain looked a bit scrambled and then he went 84 96 180 and three knocks so you know we're not we're not saying that
2: it well I mean and that's very quickly. I think that's KP's point isn't it that it kind of you know he might not be scoring any runs at the moment and he might be looking like the the, the world is uh, is ending for him but then with somebody with that amount of ability can suddenly just go flick a switch and it and, it, and everything's fine um so I wouldn't be I wouldn't be uh, on the on the Roy out train just yet. No,
4: and just to be clear, <laughs> neither am I yet. <laughs>
2: but yeah, I
0: mean, just in terms of of other options on the notable performances, uh, James Vince made an unbeaten seventy-one in Southern Brave's opening win, and well, Jacks, already mentioned, but he played maybe the innings of the 100, uh, 81 or forty-five against Welsh Fire when no other Oval Vincibles player scored it much above a run ball, and uh, and Owen Morgan is a back in form as well. He's a played two sparking cameos for London Spirit after having had a month not very much
2: unbelievable <laughs> having spent the last month with him um, on all of those England white ball games and he kind of having, he was showing showing very little enthusiasm for getting the pads back on again and first time out he smokes it everywhere um, good on him uh, and you know the Spirit of two, two from two as well which or, is a massive won, turnaround from last year
0: already won more games this year and they didn't all yeah. the of our <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they were dismal last year weren't they? Um, On to County Cricket, where the One Day Cup is well underway. The game of the competition so far, again, came at the Oval, unfortunately. We'd, we try and not be too sorry biased, but it's tough when, the, when, when, that's, how it, when that's how it falls. Uh, sorry, burglar tie, having been 226 for eight, chasing 294 to win against Morwickshire. Nick Kimmer made 84 of 51, and then Matt Dunn smashed 34 of 19 from number 10 before falling with the scores level. Uh, 19-year-old Tom Prest has played the innings of the competition without a doubt, hitting 181 for Hampshire against Kent. And uh, there's been some big transfer news in Cadet Cricket as well, with Ryan Higgins returning to Middlesex from Gloucestershire. Undoubtedly an excellent signing, although Middlesex fans may well rue the five years he spent away from the club, having left because of uh, a dearth of first team opportunities. Um,
4: Ollie Robinson might argue he's played the innings of the competition. That's so true, far. yes,
0: Yeah. he played that double hundred. I, yeah, I guess I thought of Do- Ollie Robinson as more of an established name, whereas Prest, it was a real like a. Uh, uh, under 19 star bolt from the blue, kind of thing. Fair yeah. enough. I just sense
4: some angry Kent yes, fans that's ready true. to. Yes, yes, yeah.
0: And and I think they'll be irate at the fact that uh, it's been reported in the Evening Standard that Darren Siemens is set to leave the club at the oh. end of the season. Yeah, he might well have already played his last game. He sustained uh, an injury in a One Day Cup game, and it looks like he won't re- recover from that by the end of the season. And there's no word yet on if another counter give him. Come on, and, Leicestershire. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the, the fairy tale return. Uh, yeah. Taha, your moment of the week is from the One Day Cup.
1: Uh, yeah, it was uh, Worcestershire's uh, Kashif Ali uh, scoring 100 on his list day debut. Uh, and his his story itself is very fascinating. Uh, he spent years playing second team cricket, uh, originally from Pakistan, originally from Kashmir. I think moved over here when he was 12 or something and, and has played for so many uh, second team sides. But basically his breakthrough... He landed Worcestershire um, short-term contract a couple of months ago, uh, and then got a long-term deal this month. But his kind of breakthroughs come from being part of the South Asian Cricket Academy, uh, which was basically set up um, basically set up last year. This is their first kind of. They started running through the winter, and this is their first summer. Uh, and essentially, it is basically to you know the the galling statistic that has done the rounds in English cricket the last few years is that um players of South Asian heritage make up 30% of the recreational playing base um but that drops to about 5% at professional level uh and so the academy has been set up uh for players who are 18 plus who have kind of been rejected by the system and is trying to get them into the professional game so they've been playing games against county second 11 oppositions um all summer um, they played Worcestershire in April and Cash was playing for the South, a- South Asian cricket Academy and scored a half century from there. He kind of was trialing with Worcestershire made tons of runs for the twos and, and is now, you know, fully fledged within the setup has made his first class debut. has played this list game, scored a hundred, uh, played, played a few last games as well. Um, so it's just quite an interesting program. They've got going uh, quite reverent, revolutionary in a sense kind of similar to the similar along the lines of ace in terms of administrators weren't doing enough uh and so people have just decided that we're going to do it basically uh Saka uh has no funding from the ecb it's it's been done it's been funding's come through Birmingham city university um it's co-founded by tom brown uh, an academic who's done a lot of research in this topic and kabir ali who obviously played for england um and so it's yeah they're kind of basically showing up administrators because they're showing how much talent is out there they've beaten uh in their first summer they've beaten North Ants, second 11s they beat sorry second 11s I went to that game <clears throat> a couple months ago um and watched them you know take on a sorry team that had Dan Moriarty and Amaverdi bowling for them and win um so it's kind of just basically showing how much talent's out there so Kashev is is one guy but there's you know loads of Loads of players out there who are really Impressing for them and kind of kind of Pushing for the chance to basically rectify um, This Kind of gross sort of under-representation Yeah
0: mm. Well Tar T- has done an in-depth Feature on Saka which we published On wisdom.com this week and there's as he says Cash Valley is just one of the stories there are loads And loads of, uh, of stories And there's obviously common themes but Individual uh, narratives and stuff It's uh, definitely well worth a read look out for that one um, I will quickly run through what's happened in the international game this week, and then we'll get on to the East Africa series. So India beat West Indies 4-1 in a T20i series. They are quite good. Uh, Obed McCoy took 6-17 for 17 in the second game of that series, which was West Indies' best ever T20 figures. And then 2-66 for in the fourth, which was West Indies' most expensive T20 figures. So cricket comes at you quite fast. Um, over in Harare, Zimbabwe beaten Bangladesh in an ODI series, winning the first two games due to a couple of unbeaten hundreds from Zakandaraza. Uh, rescuing aside from a couple of tricky positions. Um, his reaction to winning the first in front of a pretty healthy, pretty raucous crowd is worth seeking out as a real sort of lean back and roar after after taking the ball to the boundary. Um, and finally, Staff could beat Ireland 2-0 in t 20 T20i series, and New Zealand completed their Euro trip of Ireland, Scotland and the Netherlands with a blemishless record. So well done to them. Right then, let's cast our minds back to 2003. And as I said, Joe has done an excellent feature on this in the issue of Wizarding Cricket Monthly out this week, so if you enjoy this chat, pick it up. Um, Let's start from the start with the first test, which was drawn. uh, Graham Smith making 277 and Michael Vaughan 156. Nasser Hussain then resigns as captain, having been considering doing so in the lead up to the series, and with Vaughan his clear successor in the form of his life. Joe, you write that Hussain didn't even tell his family that he was planning on quitting for fear of being talked out of it. And... But you obviously played a key part in that series. Did
2: did, did you sense it coming, or did it shock you? I, I know, I know exactly what happened because I was. I, I think I gave Nasir a ride home from the game, um, and we were sat in the car park at the hotel, and he was and I and I tried to talk him out of it. Um, you know, he was he was, but it was clear that he was kind of done. He'd he had enough, and and was, you know, questioning questioning um, everything about why, why he was doing it and and, and and whether or not the team were kind of behind him anymore you know Vaughan had obviously taken over the 50 over side and um, you know he was the the coming man and um, and I think he just realized that his time was up so as much as I as much as I did my best to try and tell him that it was all going to be okay he uh, quite rightly ignored everything I said and uh, and <laughs> and retired between the between the first and second test matches
4: I thought it was interesting so I was reading his book and uh, putting this piece together, I hadn't realised that even before, because Vaughan's one-day side had done really well that summer and I think Nassin felt the pressure on him and had already volunteered to stand down and Fletcher said, no, it's not quite the right time, but admitted that he was impressed with Vaughan's leadership. So it was all, you could sense it all closing in on him. There's a quote here, which I think kind of sums it up. Quite like I said, I could... I could feel the emotions building up in me throughout the match. He's referring to the first test. I actually felt depressed and had spoken to both the ECP medical officer and our psychologist about it. People were talking about Vaughan's Young Brigade, and I felt deep down that I was done. I hated every second of the first test. I felt the world was against me. So these are pretty strong emotions he's feeling. It struck me. I've done a few of these pieces on the 99 New Zealand series, the Sri Lanka tour. And what always strikes me is how much NASA put into that role and also how much it took out of him was that clear to see as a, as a teammate of his just what he was giving to it on a, yeah, on a I mean, daily basis he
2: cared so passionately about it I mean that was and, and still does you know you can still hear that in him when he's when he's commentating um, he just it, it was everything to him the role that you know the idea of, of, of English cricket sort of lifting itself off the bottom being able to hold its hold its head up I suppose I think he took all of that on um, and some of that wasn't really his responsibility but he felt it as the as the figurehead as England captain that it was his responsibility to kind of to make us um, to make us a better team to make us sort of respected around the world he wanted that respect for himself and he wanted that for for the side so you know it, it is no surprise whatsoever that he that he kind of felt himself I, I hadn't heard the the depression stuff but I mean you know he wasn't the happiest bloke at the best of times so it was difficult to tell um but clearly, you know that we're not talking about outward um outward signs we're talking about stuff going on um you know behind uh, behind the veneer of the of the eyes so um, look, he's he was fantastic, and I think what one of the things that I don't think a lot of people appreciate, but everybody you would have played with and under NASA would appreciate is that he he his his entire reason for doing the gig was to make us and everybody that played in the team better right you could have full stand-up row with him um swearing yelling throwing stuff or whatever and and within an hour it would be forgotten and and you could get on with get on with life and get on with trying to win test matches for England and so he was he was entirely the right man at the right time and I think you know again looking back at it that his decision was was as good a decision as he made about anything you know with all of the other stuff that he had to take on board in terms of making calls about certain players and, and putting his laying his hat on um people like vaughan and treskothic and these guys and bringing back um, some of the older players who'd been discarded on the on the on the south African tour, duncan fletchers first and bringing them back because there weren't better players around you know um The decision to step down when he did was as good a decision as he made because he knew, he knew, he understood that he had taken the team as far as he could take it and that there was a, you know, there were younger players along with the experienced players of which he was one um, who, who didn't need um, to be sort of, who didn't need to be to have their hands held all the way through every encounter. and that they were will, they were willing and able to take on their own risks, take on their own responsibilities and kind of be a be a more aggressive and progressive England team. And he knew he wasn't the man to captain that, but Vaughan was. And, you know, therein lies a l lies a great leader, not not only knowing what to do when you're in it, but knowing when to walk away from it.
0: And that came with his retirement as well, I guess, when he was, you know, played well in that test match but recognised that Strauss was the coming man and he, he probably he could have stuck around, right? And uh and played for a while longer. I don't think there was no one, like, saying, demanding that he that he go or anything, but he uh, sort of was like, this is the right thing for the team. So, did it from that point of view. Um, on, I wanted to ask about the second test and about Hussein as well, because in the piece, Joe, you said that, so Hussein dropped Graham Smith on eight, and he went on to make another double hundred, uh, and Vaughan said that he kind of, basically shouldn't have picked Hussein, that he was in no sort of fit state to play. And yet, in the second that game, he goes and kind of makes 70, and I can't work out how he can do that basically whether it's in spite of everything that's going on or because of it and and what kind of personality that makes him it's kind of crazy
4: well it sounds like his NASA's head had gone so I guess he was just on autopilot or, or, or something like that because I don't know if you were a witness to this but at the end of that test match Vaughan pulls a saying to one side and and gives him a bollocking and says that this attitude is either you're with me or you're against me basically and reassured him that there is a place for you in this side but you've gotta not behave like this and he said he and Nas said he was sort of not grateful at the time I'm sure but said he needed to slap around the face to to kind of shake him out of that um and then from then on things were a bit easier with with him and, and Vaughn
2: yeah I, d- I didn't know t- I didn't know that that happened again that was another thing that I wasn't party to at the time but um from that moment on you know Nas was was back in yeah he fielded at short leg you know Stuck the helmet on, went from captain to boot hill, um, and you know, and was absolutely fine. You know, and, and I think I don't know what the next test match was after Lords. We got a, a shellacking, didn't we? And Freddie made his made his first hundred, 100. first home hundred. That's right in the second innings. Um, but we fell, we fell well short. Uh, and then teeny took ten or eleven for I think. Um, and then the next test would have been what Trent Bridge. Yeah. Okay, so I'm you know, so there you go. The conversation that Vaughan has um with with Nasser and then NASA's performance you know he and I both made hundreds in the first innings at, at Trent Bridge and we win the test so he was back right yeah
0: how immediate was Vaughan's impact because I think looking back now people like to say Toussaint instilled the discipline in the England team and then Vaughan gave them the license to express themselves but I guess at that moment when England have you know uh that one nil down having had much the worse of the first two tests uh sort of that must not have felt like a, a huge moment of progress, I guess, especially when Vaughan's when the Vaughan era starts with that, with getting thrashed by an innings. Did did, did it feel like? Did, was was that impact immediate, or did it kind of feel like it was sort of undulating for a time?
2: I guess. Um, I, don't, I you know what? I've got no idea. Again, I, you know, it sounds like I wasn't there, but <laughs> but I, no, I don't know. I think we we were a good team. You know, we had we had some really good players knocking around at that time, and we you know we'd run into Graham Smith who was you know, just just on a mission, obviously he had a big, big point to prove as, as captain as well. I um, didn't didn't NASA call him what's his name or something before yeah. the first or before during the toss of the first, test. The first yeah. test. You know yeah. so, you know, he came out and wanted to prove that you know he was the youngest leader ever of, of South Africa and wanted to prove that he was worthy of that position and he came out like a man possessed in the first two Test matches. Um, uh, but you know, we drew the first one. Weather wasn't great. The first one, second one at Laws, we had our moments in that Test match as well. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a, it wasn't a, um, a, a massive pushover, and there were just enough performances in that Laws Test match to sort of show. Well, you know, these we, we shouldn't be. There's nothing to be afraid of with these guys. Um, you know, we got the the, the right end of a, of a good toss batted first at, at Trent Bridge and put big runs on the board, and from there on in, it was. It, it was us I think it was there was quite a big there was a big call in that second uh, that third test at Trent bridge and that um both Glenn Chappell and James Kirtley were both um in this in the squad uh they'd been an injury I't we had a lot of injuries to the a lot of injuries in that, in the that, sum, that yeah. summer because that's how Bickers, et cetera end up playing at the end and you know I was one of the senior players so I remember you know I'd have a net and Duncan would come over and Vornie come over, you know, who do you, who do you think? And I went for Chappie. I mean, Chappie used to get me out for fun in the, in the championship, so I never wanted to bat against him. Um, and pretty much, I think pretty much everybody else said the same thing, and they went with James Curley, um, who obviously took six for in the, six for in the second innings, um, and then they never played again, because they were, they were slightly concerned that he was going to get called for, called for throwing if he played again. I think, I think that's how that worked out. So, you know, a little crossroads moment for, for, for Glenn Chappell's career. But also a decision that ended up paying dividends in the in, in the in the test match, um, and so we're back in the series. So you know Vaughan's first real chance to kind of to have to have had made, uh, to have made decisions that kind of that weren't hangovers from from the previous captain. You win the test and we played bloody well and it, it was great. So away you go, and he and Duncan immediately seemed to have a, a really good rapport. I mean, Nasser and Duncan had a terrific rapport, but but again. That there was something in, in that relationship um, between himself and Duncan that sort of clicked almost straight away. Um, and they had, again, they had their, they had their guys. And, and the, the emphasis shifted a little bit towards the younger fellas than it was from, from us. I mean, obviously, Nasser, Nasser and I had played a lot of test match cricket together. And he sort of implicitly trusted. Um, people like myself and, and some of the older players, and then Vaughan would suddenly the the, the conversations would be veering towards guys like Giles and and Gothic and, and things like that. They'd perhaps be first port of call rather than us. So it was a little shift, a little sort of generational shift there. Hmm.
0: And uh, you on Graham Smith himself, like obviously now he's like this titan of South African cricket, uh, and as much for his leadership as for his for his, for his batting. Um, what was your impression of him as as a character, I guess? Were you able to have did you have a beer at the end of the series? Did you no, of... no, he
2: was he very much sort of was, was very gruff and kinda of kept himself to himself and that's again it was all part of and I think I've read stuff that he's written in the past about him putting up a veneer, putting up a you know, putting the mask on and, and trying to be um you know this sort of untouchable, big, scary character, and and so there wasn't a there wasn't a great deal of warmth, and there, there wasn't a massive amount of that in, in England South Africa contests going back to my first one in ninety eight. You know there, there was a lot. There was always a bit of niggle between certain players. One thing one thing that you noticed that you noticed again about them was that on the front foot they were very very tough you know very very difficult to beat but you always felt as though there were moments with his captaincy as there had been with Hansis that they would kind of miss the opportunity to really bury you in a, in a contest or make you know just take slightly the a, a, a more conservative turn which would give us confidence that that when push came to shove we'd be able we would be able to knock them over very different from playing against australian teams whereby you made the wrong call, you, 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 um, you, you took a backward step, or you didn't press on with an advantage you had, you were going to pay for it later. Um, and so that was, that was something that, that, that I noticed anyway about, about his captaincy, that it, it followed a similar pattern to a lot of the other South African teams that I played against, where they, whereby they were just a tiny bit conservative against you, which always left the door open for you to kind of come back in. And what are the kind of things you're talking about in the dressing room when you've got a player like that
0: who's sort of, he's batting in a kind of a weird way basically and you can't seem to get him out and he's also like a a, a new guy so you won't have seen a huge amount of him before. Uh, I mean uh, Joe in the piece it said that uh, James Curtly thought the solution was just moving square leg around a little bit which (laughs) sounds too simple to be true. Yeah well
4: he was talking about Fletcher and Fletcher's obsession with angles and the kind of science of cricket so I think it, Curtly specifically talks about moving square leg to try and cut down some of his scoring options. But I think that was one small example of... of Kurtley said he really enjoyed playing under Fletcher because he thought about cricket in a similar way and he liked dissecting it. I'm sure for some players they're like, what, what does that mean? Or that doesn't relate to me. But Curtly enjoyed it. Um, Fletcher always comes across as a really quite exceptional coach when I speak to people about his, his one-on-one uh, handling of players and the things he noticed.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, there, I think there were quite a lot of disagreements, actually, about Graham Smith. And that might give you a, a reason, a, a, an indication as to why he was so successful, particularly in the first two test matches. Because, I, you know, as a left-handed player, I always thought to myself, well, if, if, the guy, if the guy has got a very, very closed bat face and doesn't really want to hit the ball through the offside, you've got two options. One is you, you force him to try and hit the ball through the offside so your 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 length and your line needs to go needs to go a lot wider, but then your killer ball to him still ought to be the one that swings back in for the simple reason that um for the simple reason that with with the bat coming down closed in the first place, if the ball starts to move further towards the leg side, he's playing with like that much of the bat you know because it's already shut um and and I think Matthew Hoggard would prove that later you know in the the, the two thousand and four away series when he kind of kept knocking him over with the one swinging back and Smith rather like Hayden was sort of like ended up flat on his face but but where there was a dis, there was an intense disagreement about that between the bowlers and Fletch. Fletch wanted to go the other way Fletch wanted to go across him across cross him off stump but he but but if you were tight enough to off stump with the ball not really moving he would still hit that through the leg side so, so we weren't we weren't all on the same page as far as bowling to Graham Smith was concerned um and, and you know, and I think that was reflected very much in the in the returns that he had in that series.
0: Um, the fourth test was another good game. Uh, Gary Kirsten made an 8 hour one hundred and thirty. Told it together in the first inning Sounds like a
2: good game to me.
4: <laughs> was that
2: was sure. that heading day? Uh, yes. Yeah. Oh man. See, there there was there was a thing there. We Trez and I. I don't know if this was second innings. Oh, was this I was. I don't bad know if light. it was the bad light thing. Oh man. So this had happened before with, with Marcus and I in it, I think it might have been the, the mad test match where where Freddie and um, and Thorpe went nuts. It at, 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 was it Christchurch, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So a th- a green, really green pitch and, and I think second innings Tres and I come out and we just fl- we just fling the bat at it basically. We kind of like and we and we're going great, but then the light closes in and we have a conversation in the middle of the park. And I said, "Well, we're we're massacring them at the moment. Why would we go off? You know." And he sort of went, "Yeah, I think you're right." Next ball cuts it straight to point out. It's <laughs> not like <this>. oh, <laughs> nothing it, to do with the light. Didn't see just, the fielder there. Yeah. No, <laughs> not, what, no, nothing to do with the light. Just you know, unlucky. Creamed it. Went straight to point out. And and I swear to God, this is what this is what this is why what happened that happened heading me uh, You know, I might be making reading far too much into it, but similar thing is happening. We are smoking them all over the place. Um, you know, and I can see the clouds rolling in. It looks really, really dark. And I, the, the, the my first thought is, we're staying out here because they're in, they're toast. they run through all the bowling changes, and we just keep smashing them everywhere. And you know what it gets like at headingley, where it's difficult to stop people from scoring. Anyway, Trez sort of sidles up to me and he goes, Oh, what do you think?" I said, "Mate, I'm not going anywhere. We're, you know, we're, this is this is good." And he's like, mm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not all that sure. Anyway, so that the, the clouds get closer and closer, and eventually it gets dark, and the umpires come over and have a chat, and Trez is like, ah, look, I think we should go. And I'm like, are you sure? And he said, yeah, I think we should go. And at that point, I'm, you know, I was a senior player in that partnership, but at that point, I'm thinking to myself, I can't, I can't persuade. If a bloke doesn't want to be out there batting, I can't persuade him to stay out there and bat, right? So I just kind of. I think I remember I put my, my, the, the, my helmet strap in my mouth and kind of walk off very slowly like this. Anyway, lo and behold, they have a bit of a chance to regroup. They have a little bit of a think about it. Trez gets out, I get out after the restart, and suddenly we're in the, we're in the shit. You know, the, the, the runs stop coming, and we end up losing the Test match. And I remember, I, I don't know, I probably shouldn't have done this, but I had a bit of a go at, at, at us as a team, actually, in the, in the dugout there um, after the game sort of made a bit of a speech about sort of Australia and about how you know when you when you're in front you don't give back the advantage and the, the inference was pretty much aimed at Marcus which I which I probably shouldn't have done but anyway it felt to me like it was kind of it was one of those things where if we really were serious about sort of moving things forward and all that kind of stuff you, we we should, that's not what we should have done not in the position that we were in anyway
4: you got a battering in the press for that one as well, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, well, of course, because I,
2: was a senior, because I was a senior player. But again, you tell me, if, if you're out there batting and, and the bloke you're batting with doesn't want to bat, what are you supposed to do? <laughs> you know. Um, so either way, the, response, the responsibility was kind of mine, but it wasn't. Again, you know, it, it wasn't really my call. Um, you know everybody knows what I would have done, didn't? But NASA would say, "Well, you, know, you didn't care because if you got out, it would have been you just blamed it on the light and not worried about it." So, well, maybe. But, you know.
0: <laughs> there was one other thing from that test. I think on the fourth e- evening, uh, you and Flintoff were unbeaten at the end of day four, and it's in the piece that in Vaughan's book he describes you and you, you and him as lingering a bit too long for comfort in the hotel bar. Is that, is, is that how you remember well, it? Or well, well, it? But
2: again, what what happened was we had our our partners. Our so, uh, Freddie wasn't married. To, um, to Rachel at the time, but she and, and my girlfriend at the time were kind of, were, were good mates and they'd both come up and stayed and we kind of, we hadn't, booked, we hadn't booked anywhere for dinner and there wasn't, we couldn't have anywhere at the hotel, so we kind of had a, we had to wander out into town, eventually found a table, but it was quite late, um, so I think we had a few drinks and then, and then one of the writers from the press sent a bottle of wine over to our table. Right, sent a bottle of wine over to our table, compliments of, you know, whatever. I won't say who it was. He knows who it was. Um, and so, you know, we're kind of like, okay, well, we should probably be getting back. Anyway, we opened the bottle of wine and we drank it and, and then went back again. And then the very next morning, Freddie and I both got out within a blink, blink of an eye. And the story appears in the newspapers that, you know, we were out sort of lashing it up and all that kind of stuff from but with, with details in it from the bloke who sent us the bottle of wine. <laughs> so there you go, kids. Is- Don't trust them. Uh, <laughs> I mean did you not did you not sort of see the trap Well, no I mean not really I don't yeah. think it was, I didn't think it was a trap we were sitting down having dinner yeah. and it's somebody that I know very very well um, so it's
4: rude to turn down a bottle of wine, isn't oh, no, it? Absolutely. And, uh,
2: and, it, and did it have anything to do with us getting out first thing in the morning the next day? Did it? Hell. Oh. And
4: the game was gone. Uh, yeah, I sorry. know. We I, mean, were,
2: we were, I don't know what we'd put on some. Again, it was sort of one another one of those evenings at Headingley where the ball just kept hitting the boundary, and you're kind of thinking, well, it's unlikely, but it could happen, um, given that I'd been in that position on, on that ground before. But then, you, you know, as, as often happens with, with many grounds, and particularly Henley, you turn up the next day and everything's very different. You know, the, the ball moves around a bit and you, I nick one, Freddie nicks one, and that's it, game over.
0: Mm-hmm. That, that test was also notable for the return of Martin Bicknell, playing his first test for 10 years. He reduced Africa to 21-4 in on on the first morning, but was on the verge of ruling himself out of the fifth with injury before playing a key hand in what turned out to be his final test match. He talked to Joe about his part in the series.
4: Oh, I wanted to st- obviously you've taking stacks of wickets year after year for surrey without getting a look in for, for quite a long time 10 years yeah. on from your previous test were you surprised to eventually get that call uh
3: shocked yeah <laughs> but yeah it just wasn't on my radar at all right not at all never even contemplated even thinking that they might um turn to me um i guess they had a few injuries and- and they were, looking, they were looking for a horses-for-courses type bowler and, and Headingley seemed like a decent place for me to go and bowl. I was shocked.
4: Can you remember how you found out? Did you get a call? Like Some players I know... Yeah, no.
3: Yeah. I, bizarrely, I was at home and I was having a nap on the sofa and my phone rang and I missed the call. Um, I think it was... And, and it was David Graveney, and nothing, and, and I, I, honestly thought he was ringing me up to ask my opinion about another bowler. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't ring him back. And then, um, about 20 minutes later, half an hour later, I had a, a phone call from, um, Radio 5, I think it was, or Radio 2, was, anyway, I think it was, uh, Paschetti. I think it was. Right. And, and basically asking my, my opinion of my, my caller. <laughs> 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 I just, you in my shock.
4: <laughs> absolutely! Wow, what a way to find out. Um, yeah. And look, obviously, your, your county record over those years absolutely spoke for itself. But at 34, I think you were then. Did you have any concerns yeah, well, about about whether you could perform at that level before you got out there? Did you have any doubts in the lead-up? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think like most
3: most people in life, once you step up a level, you always got these doubts that you can you can go and do it again. Um, I, I was slightly concerned, really, because I, I, physically I wasn't in the greatest of shape, you know, we mid-season, had a few niggles and stuff, and mm. didn't feel great. I had bowled well a couple of games before, and I got eight wickets in the match against not a wicket gift, I think, and I bowled well in that game. Um and it was like, and then the thoughts sort of going through your head, like, you know, you know, damaging sort of my reputation almost. If it goes badly, mm. people are going to say, "Okay, that's why you shouldn't have been picked in the last ten years." But sure, yeah. I def- definitely had those those thoughts go through my head. But as soon as I got got up to Leeds and <laughs> had a look at the pitch, it was like, "Oh my god, that's perfect!" <laughs> so yeah. it was um, it was green, it was damp, it was just yeah. I thought, if ever I'm going to play for England again, I mean, this is the pitch you've got to bowl on.
4: And obviously made a, a pretty much instant impact. Got, gave us with what, your second ball? Uh,
3: yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't expecting to play really, even, even then, you know? Really? We, we played five, we played five seamers, uh, in that game. Um, and I think once Armisen, was uh, declared not fit, and then basically I got the nod the day before I would be playing. And then they said, you, you'll be taking a new ball. I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. And I think James Kirkley bowled the first over and, uh, got Graham Smith out. Which gave us a bit of a boost. And then, yeah, second ball
4: just came out beautifully, nicked off Herschel Gibbs, and we were, were off and running. And then Callis a few hours later? That's a big one to get, isn't it? Yeah,
3: yeah well, it was. Yeah, it wasn't it was unconventional. It was slightly unconventional. He it straight to Michael Vaughan at short mid off. Um, but yeah, I bowled well, you know, I bowled good areas, and I, I probably built up a bit of pressure. And he thought, oh, I'm not having much more of this, so I'm going to put my back through. And he hit it straight to Michael Vaughan and miraculously caught it. <laughs> And then uh, in the second innings you get Graham
4: Smith. I wanted to speech about Smith. Obviously, he was a huge figure in that series. First yep. captain, a, a strange batter in lots of ways. How how was he? How challenging was he to bowl to? Did you enjoy bowling at him?
3: I, I did because he, he can get any runs. <laughs> <laughs> so um, obviously he got two double hundreds in that series before. So yeah, the talk was always Graham Smith that how good he was. And obviously there a lot of very good players. <clears throat> Yeah, I think, you know, I got about twice LBW, I think, yeah. um, both balls just, just swinging back in at him. Um, I maybe hadn't, hadn't faced much of that in the series so far, but he clearly had a bit of an issue sort of playing around his front pad, um, and we exploited that.
4: It's obviously an interesting time for the England team as well. Um, Vaughan had just taken over... NASA's still in the dressing room there. I've been looking through both their books. It was obviously an emotional time for for NASA in particular, who had given so much to that job and and then stepped away from it. I wonder, what what was the mood like in the the change room and on on the pitch at that point as we're kind of going through this transition period?
3: Um, You still sort of felt that there was an, an inevitability in that match that we were going to lose. You know, it, it just it didn't feel like there was much belief in the team, and, and and it was still you know when we got behind in the game, there was all that sort of feeling amongst the senior players that they'd seen it all before, and, and they were expecting to lose. Um, but I, I I found Michael really good as a captain. I thought he was um, fresh. He like, backed his players. Um, he backed me, which was really important. You know, he had total belief in in me and, you know, over the two games I played um which was which was really good and i did enjoy his captaincy
4: uh then obviously that that game does end in heavy defeat did you kind of fear that yep. your recall might just be a one-off that that was that
3: yeah absolutely yeah i had no intention of of playing another game i thought that was that was it for me and and then basically the you know the end of the game it was like okay we'll see you at the overall and it was like oh right okay <laughs> so I, n- nothing, I mean, I bowled really well in the game. I mean, I, it, was a, it was a really good pitch for me to bowl on. You know, I, I didn't have the pace that I maybe had slightly earlier in my career. Um, so I needed sort of assistance in the pitch. I needed the ball to swing. Uh, and, and that happened in that match. Um, and then I'm thinking, right, okay, next game at the Oval, which will be flat. Mm. It'll be a proper shirt front. And I think I if, if I'm going to get exposed, this, this will be the game where I get exposed. Um, so again you know the, the, the nagging doubts sort of creep in and you're thinking Christ you know uh, maybe this is a, a step too far at my age um, so I wasn't overly confident and then I, on top of that I had a bit of a hamstring niggle Right. Uh, the easy thing the easy thing for me to say would have been you know I'm not fit because um, I wasn't 100% fit and I was getting a bit of pressure from, from David Graveney um, to make a decision um, and he said basically you can't play in the game and then break down on the first day so I knew I had to, to play the game, mm. um, uh, fully fit. Uh, and I had a bit of a fitness test a couple of days before the match and it, was, it, was, it felt okay. So I said, right, okay, I'm not going to get a better chance. This, this is the you know, This is my last, last game. I know it's going to be my last game for England. You know, if you're you going finish, why not be at your home ground, um, in a test match? So, um, so I, I declared myself fit and obviously the game didn't go Great first day. We were we were pretty awful. I bowled pretty poorly. Uh, I didn't think I was was having any effect in the game at all. The ball didn't do anything. It was flat. They racked up three hundred and sixty for two at one point. I think they were. (laughs) And the game game was done. We got booed off. I think. I think we got uh, an awful lot of stick coming off the field that day. Um, And. At the end of that first day, I just wanted the whole thing to end. I just said, All right, okay, I'm, you know, I'm done. You know, I'm, I'm I, I don't really want to go through another four days of that. Yeah. Um, and then overnight, I sort of had that sort of feeling of, right, okay, I, you know, I didn't feel like I really committed in that first inning, uh, that first day. And I thought driving to the ground, coming into the ground, I thought, right, okay, I'm going to give it a, a proper go. And Michael Horn gave me the, the ball, start the innings, uh, new ball. I thought, right, you know, which was a surprise because he could have gone to anyone. Mm. Um, but he he gave the ball to me and I thought, right, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to really run in hard, as hard as I can here and I'm going to just try and make something happen and and just give it my best shot. And fortunately I got a couple of wickets. Um, and then we were off and, and, and that was it really. We started coming back into the game. I sort of enjoyed it a bit more. Um, we were sort of back in the game obviously a long way behind because they got, they got a, Big score, but as soon as we started batting, it was like right. Okay, we can get if we can get slightly ahead of them here, we can put them under a bit of pressure. Yeah, and that's what and that's what happened. Obviously, chose got double hundred, Thorpe got hundred, um, and then it was like right. And Flintoff smashed a few at the end, um, and we're thinking right. Okay, there's only one team that can win this now. So that gave us a massive, massive boost coming out, and I thought right. Okay, second inning, just run it, run it, and bowl.
4: You know, full out, no no regrets, and just give it your best shot, and you know. Unfortunately for, for me, you know, it turned out really well. You obviously didn't get another chance after playing a big part in uh, squaring that series. Uh, Vaughan writes in his autobiography that he, he felt you were very lucky not to have played more for England in the years before that uh, and that you were quite unfortunate that the next tours were to the subcontinent, which obviously didn't quite feed into yeah. your kind of skill yeah. set in the same way. Were you able to enjoy that South Africa series for what it was in isolation or did it kind of leave you with some regrets that... You had this now evidence that you could have performed at that level, but didn't necessarily get the opportunities.
3: No, I think I think what those two games did was just confirm that I could have played at that level for for, for much more. You know, I mean, admittedly, I was never the quickest bowler. I, would I have struggled in the subcontinent? Probably. You know, but you know, there was how many tours I went to subcontinent? Mm. There, there were never that many, and you know, I think I would have done well in in slightly. You know, better bowling conditions, you know, with a bit of movement in the pitch or a bit of swing, I'll, I'll always find it. Um, so I think, yeah, obviously it would have been nice to play more games, but the best thing about it was I came back and I, I showed people what they possibly missed, which, you know, sort of leaves me with a legacy of, you know, uh, it sort of builds my legacy a little bit more. Mm. Yeah. So for that, I'm really, really grateful of those two test matches that sort of made my career in a way.
4: Yeah, uh, and you mentioned you enjoyed playing under Vaughan. Obviously, this was an important series and the start of something for, for England. Flintoff really coming into his own and all kind of leading up to yeah. 05. Did you yeah. see Vaughan going on to achieve what he what he did as a captain and, and that team going on to become as, as good as they were?
3: Yeah, I mean, there was a really good vibe about the team. I mean, uh, especially after the test match of the Oval, when you, know, you, you won it and you've you drawn the series against a good South African side. There was a sense of, you know, my god, yeah, we could, we could actually, we could be half decent, you know, Harmison bowled really well in that second inning as well. Um, Jimmy Anderson was bursting on the scene. Freddie was, you know, gonna be sensationally, you just knew that. Mm. Um, and was sort a of quality player. There's yeah, still a lot of very good players. So you look at it and think like, uh, that team, that team really should be doing a lot better than it is. And, you know, it didn't, it was, it was nice to be sort of part of that. The, the sort of rebirth of the side and it was, it was great to then to watch um, obviously the, the, the way they played their cricket over the
0: next few years. Butch, that fifth test was basically Bazball but 20 years ago. I mean, South Africa made nearly 500 and did it pretty quickly and then England made nearly six, oh, more than 600 at nearly four and over. Uh, Flintoff crashed 95 nearly on a ball. Uh, Harmson claims four for 30-odds to South Africa across day four and five. Is it fair to say that this test really was the start of the Vaughan era, or could you sense it from before then?
2: That was a, that was one of my favourite test matches ever. That I, I mean, I, did, I didn't particularly do anything batting wise. I mean, um, it, bar being there at the end when we chased, knocked off 120, whatever, and walked off with the stumps. It was one of my. It was just brilliant. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, and again, another one of those moments where South Africa had us absolutely on toast in their first innings, and then and then let us off. You know, I can't remember. You have to look up the scorecard, but there, but there was a, they had a collapse, didn't they? Um, and kind of let us back into the game a little.
0: They were 350 for two at one stage. That's, that, that's what 350 says. 350
2: yeah. for two at the end of day one, I think. Mm. And, and, and they didn't bury us from there. I mean, you, know, you could argue that 500 and whatever was burying, but it felt to us like we were still just about hanging in there. And then of course, Thorpey on his return and uh, Trez, Trez plays a, a magnificent hand of 220. Thorpey comes out and smashes it on his on his game back after from game back from the wilderness. So many um, great stories, in that just, game br- Just there? incredible. Yeah. All of it was fantastic. Everything about it, the weather was brilliant, the crowd were huge. Um and then and then Bickers, Bickers is set up and dismissal of um of uh, Jacques Rudolph um in front of his home crowd, you know, two out and one in and and we did, we knocked them over for nothing didn't we in the third innings of the game you know mm. they they had a they had a bit of a they had a bit of a South Africa moment in the third innings and so
4: yeah 2-2 two, two, nine Harmison and Bignell taking four each
2: yeah and that was it and it was just left for us to go and to go and sort of strut to the uh, strut to the end and 2-2 two, two felt like 2-2 two, two, after the first two test matches people would you'd have had long long odds on that being the score at the end of that series i think and so, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's kind of you know su- suddenly there's a there's the belief there that under under the new captain and new management and with a slightly freer way of going about playing games of cricket that we had enough really good really talented players to be able to to be able to win matches from unlikely scenarios. Now, in in NASA's day, and again, this is not to have a go at NAS. All of the chat would have been about how do we how do we get out of this one with a draw. Um, you know, and we may or may not have managed to do that. Probably not. But, you know, you, you win a game having conceded 500 back in 2003 was not not something that happened in England very often.
0: Yeah, and we should talk about Flintoff, who um, was player of the series in that series. Obviously, he made the brilliant 140-odd and then a really quick 95 in uh, that fifth test to sort of give him enough time. Um, how a kind of revolutionary... Did he feel how much of a breakthrough did it feel like for him? I, mean, I know he'd got that hundred over the winter, but did this feel like a player who we didn't know had this in him, or was this sort of uh, like Flintoff kind of coming good on on lots of promise? Or, or what was the feeling like around? Yeah, him, it, was,
2: it was a coming coming of age series for him. And again, I don't know because I don't know that 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 Freddie particularly sort of got on well with either Nasser or Vaughn. I don't think there was ever a sort of like a real close relationship. But under Vaughan, he kind of he perhaps felt like he had a bit more of a free reign to go and to to do what he wanted to do, um, and again was surrounded by a lot of people who were who were good players. You know, I think if if you're sort of like this this um, superstar all rounder, but your top order doesn't ever score any runs and your bowling attacks a bit pants you know team, well, i mean apart from richard hadley i suppose you know you you could look at that and go and sort of you get buried under the weight of your own expectations for the expectations for yourself or the expectations that other people have of you and then suddenly he's, he's involved in this team in this team environment where the bats are able to score runs he's surrounded by other bowlers who are who are very very good um and then he's able to come out there and and, and have and have some fun you know go out there and do what he does best which is be bloody destructive with the bat and ball rockets with the ball and also he so if if south africa had graham smith as this sort of the big bear the big intimidating bloke then we had one that was you know i'd i'd, I'd take freddie put it this way if i'm if i'm having to put cash on who's going to win that contest so we also had our own you know our own guy that wasn't going to be pushed around by anybody um and he absolutely relished that uh, and, and was allowed to do so
0: uh, well, if you enjoyed that, make sure to pick up the new issue of Wisden Cricket Monthly out this week with Joe's piece in that series, Not Sales Besides, including an interview with another gritty, uncompromising South Africa captain aiming to put some English noses out of joint. Joe, tell us about that.
4: Yeah, this this is a good interview, actually. It was done by a uh, South African writer called Luke Alfred. who got hold of Dean Elgar for us a few weeks ago, uh, spoke to Elgar about his rebuilding of the South African side around a campfire in one of those sort of team bonding exercises before they went to the Caribbean. They won there. They've done brilliantly since. They're top of the world test championship table for those who who don't follow that table religiously. Everyone apart from Ben. Uh, (laughs) So they're going to be a good side to play against. But uh, Luke did well in asking him about his thoughts of New England and Elgar's response I thought was quite quite amusing in that he said, "Uh, the New England style is quite interesting but I don't see that there's longevity in brave cricket because I see things evening out over time There's often parity between England and New Zealand and had New Zealand taken their opportunities and their catches, then things could have been very different. England would have come away with egg on their faces. So I think Elgar fancies that his South Africa side, who are going to play far more pragmatically than than Ben Stokes' team, have a little bit of an opening there. Uh, And it's going to be, I'm really excited about this series. I think it's going to be fascinating to see a, a really strong South African attack going up against an England batting unit who are just going to play their shots. Uh, South Africa's batting is a is a is a bit weaker, I think, um, but that yeah, Rabada and Nokia versus you know Bersto Stokes Root is going to be brilliant watching this summer. Uh, and Elgar's a he's a sort of old school Test skipper, so it'll be interesting to see these kind of clash of cultures, which is the theme that we've lent on for the cover of the magazine this mm, month. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll
0: have a full preview of that series next week. Um, but what Joe, tell us what, what else is in the mag that's worth checking out.
4: There's a brilliant piece from Adam Collins who was out in Sri Lanka covering the Australia series. He was in Gaul whilst Sri Lanka were pulling off an incredible test match win set against the backdrop of civil unrest, uh, chaos really. Um, but he witnessed that the, the Gaul fort became a sort of battleground between Sri Lankan fans who wanted to be up there. The authorities kept trying to take them down because they didn't want them up there protesting during a televised test match. Um, so Colo's kind of attention was was between these two things and he writes it beautifully. He's done a lot of stuff for us over the years, but I think this might be the best piece he's done. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, it's about more than cricket, which is always a good start for any cricket piece, uh, I think. So that's definitely worth reading. Nice column from Mark Rambakash this month on form, the vagaries of form, how it can elude you, how you can get it back. Looking at though, in particular this summer and, and how he's been able to kind of get back to well, not get back to, to get to new levels that we never thought he could he could reach, uh, and in amongst it we've got Andrew Miller's kind of mere culpa for coining the term Basball, which he did on uh, the Crick Info podcast a little while back, not knowing the, that it would take older have a life of its own. And I, the I don't think Key or McCullum are particularly fond of Basball as a term. So uh, Andrew tries to explain what it means, where it comes from, uh, and yeah and apologizes for for it being everywhere <laughs> as well
0: yeah nice well make sure to pick up a copy uh that's all we have time for this week thanks taha thanks mark thanks joe and uh if you have enjoyed listening please leave us a nice maybe even a five-star review on the app of your choice cheers <laughs>
3: Podcast Network.